Hey, look at that. I've got hair on me. What a perfect way to start. Hi, everyone. It is the 11th. Can you believe it? It's already the 11th of May, uh, 2023. My name is Luke Thomas. This is episode, I believe, 157 of my live chat. How are you guys doing on this wonderful Thursday? Um, hope you're doing well. I'm doing pretty great myself, I think. Um, we're in a bit of a weird period in MMA, man. But there's a lot of UFC fan dissatisfaction out there. Um, I won't say it took me by surprise, but it has accumulated, I think, a lot following the UFC 288 pay-per-view. So we can talk about the fallout from that, plus that broader trend that I'm talking about. Um, really, anything that's on your mind. Best place to do that, of course, youtube.com slash community. I put up a thread 24 hours in advance. You guys fill it up, and then we react to whatever you guys vote to the top. So um, we can do that for about an hour. If you want to get a paid question in, you certainly are under no obligation to do that. But if you do, we'll get to those at the end. We'll put them on the screen. All that fun stuff, yeah? All right. With that in mind, uh, let's get this party started. Yeah? All right. Ayo. All right. We're back. A uh, little, what's that called? A stinger. A little stinger there for you. I'm trying to remember if there's any news and notes. Uh, on the morning combat side, I cannot overstate this enough. Tomorrow we're going to be in studio. We're going to spin the wheel. Brian might eat things that make him vomit right on set. That's a real thing that could happen. We're actually going to do all that kind of stuff. So please join us for that. That's going to be a grand time. Um, yeah, and then we're going to have uh, an RSD we're going to cook off. We're going to be doing the prelims for the Showtime broadcast for Championship Boxing. We're going to have a fun couple of days in Jersey City. So please tune in for that. And also our interview with Phil DeRue just went live. Um, Phil DeRue is a guy who built himself from humble beginnings to, I think, a very accomplished MMA coach, strength coach, and um, and then some, much more than that, actually. Uh, but certainly that as well. So please go check that out. He's got an incredible story that uh, I think is actually pretty inspiring, to be honest with you. I have, a lot, I have a lot of respect for the story, the journey, and the work ethic, and the talent, frankly, of Phil DeRue. So please go check that out if you haven't. But okay. We got to get to the questions that you have asked us here uh, today, or you've asked me, I should say. So let's bring that up if we can. There uh, we are. There we go. Let's do it like this, though. There we go. Okay. Uh, wait, wait. This is the top. Here we go. Uh, Luke, the actually, you know what? Let me refresh this real quick. Okay. Now let's do it. Yeah. Same one. Okay. Luke, the possibility of uh, Zhang Weili and Yan Xiaonan is a huge opportunity for the Chinese market. However, is it bigger for a China versus China matchup or two separate fighters for the crowd to cheer for two individuals instead of against one uh, against each other? So, for example, uh, Weili versus Rose and Yan versus Lemos or something. Well, um, that, that wouldn't be a – let me go back to this. That, that certainly would not be a bad thing. That would not be a bad thing to have that set up. Um, and in fact, it might even be a better thing if they had a Chinese person, a Chinese fighter who was really, really good. Like in this case, you know, both of them are really good, but let's say the champion, John Wiley, and then some other kind of um, antagonist, some other kind of opponent who culturally could magnify the entire thing. I don't, I don't know exactly what that would be for Chinese audiences. I don't know whether that would be an American fighter or a Japanese fighter or I don't know what exactly that would look like for them, but someone who could be seen as a rival that would really impact what would I, I think that would marshal 
the cultural forces that get people to root for countrymen and sporting activities like the Olympics or the World Cup, something that can you know really harness that. Um, nevertheless, having two women legitimately at the very top in a, an all-China affair, I think, also does a really good job potentially of marshalling those forces. So there are a couple of permutations that you could argue might be the optimal version, fair, uh, maybe this one, it's hard to say exactly if this would be the optimal one. Maybe the one I'm uh, positing is not optimal, but the one I aforementioned where it's this, you know, really suitable antagonist. Because like one of the biggest fights in Pride, which was trying to, to um, you guys missed this one. Or if you've been a fan for a long time, then you didn't miss this. But for newer fans, you missed this one. You missed the rivalry between Yoshihiro Akiyama, who... You know, the Japanese accept kind of, sort of. He's sort of more seen as a Korean guy or he has dual identity and dual nationality. But there are a lot of Japanese who reject his Japanese identity when he was going up against the Grobaka hitman, Kazuo Masaki. The Akiyama-Masaki rivalry is one of the best rivalries ever in MMA, frankly. Just completely unique and like totally this cultural moment in, in Japan. Like something like that, where like, you know, the Japanese have a very strong rivalry Um with the Koreans, I think vice versa. And so that really played itself out with somebody bringing both identities to the ring. Um, something like that might be the very best version. I still think what they've got could be a hugely powerful and positive force. And I think for that reason, it's pretty good news. Yeah. All right. I don't know if I agree with the uh, statement here, but I'll read it just the same. Uh, there we go. Look, you've proven yourself a real hip hop fan. Have I? Great acumen for the genre. I mean, the version that was around when I was in my 20s and 30s, that's utterly irrelevant now. But all right, what is your favorite rap? Okay, what is your favorite rapper, rapper's verse or song between 90, late, excuse, between 90s and late 2000s? Metrics to measure by melodically, delivery, impact on the culture as it relates to longevity and timelessness. Ooh, that's a good one. Pure bars, word pay, alliteration, and lyrical craftsmanship on literary devices. Um, well, I'll tell you that like, okay, so here's just where I'm at as a 43 year old white guy who's a dad to the extent that that is a person's opinion on hip hop you care about. I'll give it to you. I don't imagine that it is, but I'll try just the same. I would say that the full answer for me would probably be big pun, which it, I don't know how folks hear that, but I mean, like, for example, best storytelling would be Nas, um, impact on culture, probably jay-z delivery notorious big i obviously have a new york bias being an east coast guy but big pun would be the one for me big pun to me was um just better than most of his contemporaries even at the time I, you know when you first saw big pun you saw him with the still not a player song and he was this enormous fat guy and you're like who the fuck is this Who's this Jamoke? I don't give a shit what he has to say. Like, you didn't really get a clear sense of who he was. And then when you listen to, like, Dream Shatterer or, um, you know, the deep cover song Twins uh, with with uh, with Fat Joe or even, like, I got to tell you, have you guys ever heard his guest spot on DJ Clue's album? The song is called Fantastic Four, so it's, like, Cameron, Noriega, Big pun and like prime cannabis. This was like 98, something like that. Dude, big pun fucking murders that song. <laughs> I wish I could play it. I wish I could play it. Um, but yeah, probably the one I would say the most for me to wrap. I mean, he didn't have enough of a catalog because he died so young. But if you think you know big pun and you've never like if you've listened to his music, this does not in any way apply to you. But I gotta tell you, if you think you know him, 
based on like what singles you've heard or that you've seen him pictures of him he's a big old fat guy like obviously he can't rap for shit dude he can rap circles around people even like the the, his flow would he could easily weave his way in and out of today's sort of different style of hip-hop he could do all of those things he's incredible he's truly incredible so for me yeah ear candy sonically flow cadence punch longevity timelessness that one's somewhat debatable but even then i think his impact has been rather substantial pure bars wordplay yeah alliteration lyrical craftsmanship all literary devices yeah i would go big pun for me big pun uh, okay. All right, here we go. Going back and forth from one championship in UFC recently, it's hard not to notice how Aljo uses the rules of a downed opponent in his favor on failed shots. Yes, that is true. Do you think it's at all possible that we see knees to grounded opponents in the UFC strictly to keep the action moving, or will this just be one of the reasons I may like one's product slightly more than the other? I tend to think that it's going to be the latter more than the former. Remember, MMA is not regulated on a federal level. It is regulated on a state-by-state level. And what the UFC really did was they hitched their wagon to the 10-point must system, basically. Um, and they went state-to-state to get this regulated, and they had the state. This, this is why we go back to Colorado. I explained it on MK. I explained it last week. But this is why it's so critical to understand this. They try to homogenize MMA by making any any business in their position would have done this. It sounds like I'm making them out to be Gargamel from the Smur. You know what I mean? Like some kind of evil villain in you know a high castle rubbing their hands together. It's not what I mean. But to put forward their business interests, they went state by state to get MMA regulated, which was really beneficial. But they wanted it regulated in a way that was suitable to their kind of MMA. Like the only kind you could produce was the one they were already the best at. Right, which is why when Colorado was like, Well, we have this rule set, but you can also employ this other rule set, and many of these rules don't match up. That was a huge moment, huge, huge, huge. And get remember, here's how big you know it is the UFC has retaliated against Colorado by refusing openly to say, We're just not going to bring shows to the state as long as they're doing stuff like this. Like they're telling, they're putting states on notice. You can't do this or we just won't return. Um, so, you know, it's really important to understand like how big a deal that is. On top of it, your point is totally right. I mean, it's not just, I mean, where did Aljo get this from? The guy who kind of really patented this, where they're on essentially their hands and knees, not their feet, but their hands and knees, and they're kind of ducking and dodging with their chest really low to the ground. That was Benson Henderson. Benson Henderson did that all the time because it makes... When one opponent is standing, and in the case of Henry Cejudo, he was locking up, you know, like front head pinches and stuff like that. But either way, if you're standing over it, you can't kick them. You can kick the body, but they can move into it, especially if you're right in front of them. It's just hard to get a good kick in. When was the last time you saw someone just kick the kick the ribs of a downed opponent? It's like hard to find yourself in one of those circumstances. And so Benson Henderson was able to do all of that. Aljo took, I think, a lot of that and and made it part of his game in this one. And that's just them playing the rules for what they are. But the problem is, not only has the UFC tied their identity to this kind of MMA, let's say that they decided, well, we have to change it. And they, and in the future, there might be a case where they do so. But in this case, they'd be making MMA, at least in theory, somewhat more dangerous. But more to the point, they would have to go, just from a workload standpoint, they would have to go back and go to Nevada, then go to California, then go to Texas, then go to Florida, then go to blah, 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 blah. And they could do that, but that's just another pain in the ass for them that they have to then go go through. They'd rather just, I think, keep what they have 
because their power in the in the game is so entrenched and then just say fuck it like the other guys can try this but it's not really going to matter we're the 800 pound gorilla in this industry and that's that i think that's really what they're thinking is i i would just go back to this this is why one championship again you know i'm not going to rehash my old debate with them but just from their product standpoint they have a true genuine alternative to the ufc MMH roster to MMA roster, they can't compete. And even overall roster to overall roster, they can't compete. But what they have done in mixing up submission grappling and finding a really clever lane for four-ounce Muay Thai or whatever you want to call that, um, it has provided a real alternative. It has given them access to top-name grapplers, top-name Muay Thai fighters, plus, in many cases, some top-name MMA fighters. It gives them access to more premier talents in different areas and then in their mma side with the way they judge fights which i think is by far the best way and then now dude you relax underneath in that scenario where let's say it's henry cejudo on top and aljo underneath you relax there and one you're going to get blasted like you can't relax there at all you'd have to flop to your back or scramble or reshoot or you just couldn't hang out you couldn't hang out at all but this is what i mean like the unified rules are the ones that have spread the furthest and that we most commonly associate with MMA. That is an entirely separate question about whether it is the best rule set in MMA. Seems to me they are very distinct things. They could be overlapped. They aren't necessarily. Luke, when analyzing the long-term effects and wear and tear on a fighter's body, do you believe there are significant differences in the toll it takes on grapplers compared to strikers? If so, what are some of your factors that contribute to these disparities and how can fighters mitigate the potential risks associated with their respective styles? I'm a little bit out of my depth on this one uh, because I don't really know. I've never had a lot of my friends who I've known over the course of their athletic careers are primarily grappling based. So I've seen the injuries that they deal with. Um, so what I can tell you is arthritis is a problem. You know what? I mean, uh, let me show you this picture. If you guys know me, you've seen this before. Um, let me show you something. So, yeah, look at this. So I, I don't know if this is um, Joao or Paulo Miao, but it's one of them. And uh, look at his hands. I want you to look at his hands. I'm going to show you a picture here in just a second. Now, this is com... Uh, yeah, hold on. Let's do this. Yeah, here, I'll... I'll put it on for you um let me see here yeah take a look at this look over here look at his fingers look at the arthritis and then the growths at the at the metatarsals and whatnot like dude he, they didn't take this picture when he was in his 60s they took this picture when he was in his 20s now you might say well look that is horrible that is a lot of gi related training versus no gi it really fucks your fingers but, you know, a lot of top-level grapplers, you're asking about injuries, a lot of them still do it or have done it for a long time. Their hands have a ton of arthritic problems. As you can imagine, anything with the joints, shoulder problems, shoulder tears, uh, elbows, been out of shape, any number of knee problems, PCLs, MCLs, ACLs. Again, you can have arthritis in there as well. The big one I've seen for guys, I know two black belts that got black belts, I think in their 20s, late 20s, maybe early 30s, but they had been rolling for a long time. They still roll to this day. They're both in their early 40s. I know two guys in their early 40s who otherwise you'd be like, these guys are just markers of physical health. Um, they've had hip replacements. Um, I know a lot of grapplers who've had uh, neck issues. You see a lot of neck issues in wrestlers like, you know, uh, Tito Ortiz had a number of neck issues. Um, 
back issues. Those are the ones I commonly associate with grapplers and or wrestlers. Some slight, you know, everyone seems to deal with knee injuries, but the arthritic problems, the joint problem, anything that they, you know, a, um, anything related to joints, movement, Obviously, there is some head trauma, believe it or not, in grappling. You can get dumped on your head. I've seen guys take a knee accidentally and get concussed. Um, that's not as much a problem as that kind of a thing. I would say that the striking-based arts, tend you tend to obviously see, and this is really no surprise. This is why I'm really not the best person to answer this question. You're just going to see them much more associated with neurological problems, I think, long-term. Um, but yeah, man, I, these, you know, everyone's like, oh, jujitsu is good for you. Like, in what dose? And what dose, <laughs> you know, it's in, in, in professional athletics, we have a weird definition of healthy, right? They define healthy as like, when you think about pro sports, like who's healthy, they don't mean healthy. Like you're, you're in good physical condition, although it could mean that what it just means is, are you ready to perform and play? That's it. That's what they mean by healthy, but that you can get to that point and still be doing a lot of very unhealthy, dangerous, injurious things. They just call that healthy. It's I mean, there's nothing healthy about it. Um, so the point I'm trying to make here is like people be like, oh, I did a lifetime of jujitsu. Listen, man, everyone's different. Everybody's different. If you've done a lot of it and you feel great, by all means, please continue. But, um, you know, just seeing what it's done to two guys who regularly trained for about 12 to 15 years who were still relatively young in terms of the overall arc of life have to get hip replacements i mean what's that going to look like when they're 60 or 70 you know um i don't know i guess we're going to find out everyone treating it like it's fucking bikram yoga you know and everyone's going to just like do this one to their 70s and shit like yeah okay right you're just a young person trading off um athletic performance and frankly or i shouldn't say that you're trading off basic mobility and other forms of that uh, other forms of what, what physical strength or physical integrity can do in terms of providing quality of life. You're just trading that off at the end of your life. And some people want to make that trade, but that's the trade they're making. And they're just, they're making it without any way of really knowing that they just feel like, Oh, I don't need this. Like, for example, my thumb never works right anymore. Like this, I'm left-handed and I have a fairly strong grip, but I have a hard time like using my thumb to grip anything. And sometimes it'll tremor. I got it stretched out one time, uh, posting on it and it completely got, it never broke and it was all blue and purple and it kind of went back to normal. I have a hard time making a full grip as a concept. I mean, like, you know, shit just doesn't work right. All right, here we go. Jack Slack has highlighted a pat, highlighted, excuse me, a past fight between Islam Makachev and Mansoor Barnawi, where Barnawi gave him a lot of trouble and had repeated success with the Giggler sweep. Yep, given how long ago that was, do you think he could pose the most significant threat to Usman Nurmagomedov, assuming he's improved since then? Yes, of course. Also, what are the realistic chances we will ever see a crossover between yourself and His Grace? I don't know who His Grace is. Um, okay. Yes, I, I mean, here's the thing. So, like, Barnawi is fighting Primus tomorrow in France. He's the dark horse to win the tournament, not the favorite, but certainly the dark horse. The problem for him is that um, the winner of this fight has to fight Usman Nurmagomedov. And it's like, unless Usman hasn't done his homework, 
some of the things that are like part and parcel to Barnawi getting the one up on his opponent should be taken away. Um, he does. And the other part too is Islam is pretty careful. So is Usman. Usman's a, like Khabib is a little bit more like in your face with his attack. He really just kind of swarms you and really takes it to you. And sometimes he has to readjust and readjust and readjust to get it going. Um, you know, I'd say Usman's a little bit more careful. Usman can also stand a little bit more. I think, you know, if he had to win the whole fight on his feet, he could. So there's just a few factors that make that a bit of an uphill climb for Barnawi. But I do, I think, I, I don't think folks, A, he is capable of winning that contest. I don't favor him to, he'll beat Premise, I think, tomorrow, but I'm saying against Usman Nurmagomedov. Um, I think he'll be competitive. I just feel like Usman's got a few too many things locked down. But, but, like I said, dark horse to win. It's Barnawi. It's not anyone else in that tournament. It's Barnawi. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Uh, hey, Luke, I want to gain your insight, such that I have any, into the matchmaking of young prospects in the UFC. I've noticed that it is a habit of the UFC to fast-track certain prospects, and as you've noted, it can sometimes lead to messing their development up. Why do you think the UFC sometimes matchmakes so aggressively? Do you see any upcoming fight that might fit that bill? Uh, a few reasons where it might happen. One is the matchmakers fall in love with the guy. I've seen that happen. Sometimes they're right, by the way. Sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're wrong. But definitely that can affect it. That's one level. The other one could be their manager really has a bug in their ear um, about what this guy can do and what he's ready for. And then sometimes you'll get it where they'll fill in for someone on short notice, look really good, and then they'll use that to then fast track them. Again, that's a little bit less. Usually they're on someone's radar a little bit early, but there can be ways in which they get it. So it can be a managerial relationship. It can be a promotional need. It can be something the matchmakers see. Also, it can just be their background and if they really want it. So in like the case of Raul Rosas, which again, the jury's still out. He's too young to declare what it's going to be, but he's got Mexican national behind him. He's very, very young. I mean, that sort of, or I, I should say he has a Mexican background and he's very, very young. So he crosses between two worlds and like even a third, if you want to consider youth of that, you know, 18, 19, like pulling in that demo such that he can, he's just got a lot going for him on the promotional side of things, right? That's really valuable to a promoter. And he wants, at least for now, all the smoke, whether that's a good idea, time will tell, but it's certainly he wants all the smoke and you have to give him credit for that. So it's just a few factors like that. Is he valuable to the to the matchmakers? Do the matchmakers really have an eye for him? How much are they aggressively pushing it behind the scenes? How much is their manager pushing it behind the scenes? How much promotional raw material is there to work with? These tend to be the things. And a lot of times what you'll notice is it's a lot of guys in non-American markets. Like they're looking for the next big thing out of England. They're looking for the next big thing out of Mexico. They're looking for the next big thing out of you name it. And it's funny, like, you, you'll see this in other places too, in different weight classes. Or uh, this is another one too. If a weight class is kind of stagnant and then someone comes and just blows it up all of a sudden with a big, like Johnny Walker was doing that for a little while, right? I mean, he got kind of, uh, he didn't get exactly fast-tracked in that way, but you can get a lot of advantageous matchmaking and build something early and kind of woo the matchmakers that way too. But you just got to remember what the UFC's needs are. They want to grow in these other markets. They want to have presences in them, or a presence, I should say, in them. They want to have an anchor fighter that they can really use as like to uh, in those markets to generate interest and youthful ones guys who claim that they're ready when it, you know they're seems like they're defying the odds or whatever um this will define who kind of gets a lift and who doesn't it's an imperfect imprecise inconsistent science but there are a couple of like undercurrents that 
that you'll find case to case that you'll see like, aha, I can kind of see the commonality between these two. Like pick one, like Raul Rosas Jr. is another one. Bo Nickel, right? He's a super stud uh, star athlete with a – his situation is a little bit different because he has an enormous amount of competitive experience and he looks like he is acclimating to MMA at warp speed. So his situation is a little bit different. But um, or look at what Hamza. No one knew who Hamza was until Fight Island. And then he gets like two wins and two weight classes in a couple of days. He's got the beard again. Does he have the look? What is there promotionally as raw material? What are they trying to do in terms of their business interests? How much is he facilitating keeping the trains leaving the station by taking spots on fight cards? What does he do as a promoter and on his in his own right as a promotional entity? All these things work together to push to push certain ones. But again, it's I, I often say this, man, like it's like the NFL draft, man. They'll draft people. And, you know, in general, the ones who get drafted in the first round end up lasting in the NFL longer than the ones who get drafted in the seventh. But you can get undrafted and be a, you know, all pro. You can be first round and then you're gone. You can be it's like the the a capacity for teams to get that right is extremely imperfect. They, their method of screening, and that's extensive screening, it still doesn't get it right. I mean, th think about all the resources these billion-dollar organizations put into finding someone that can meet their needs through the draft. They have whole teams devoted to this, months, weeks, stats guys, unit coaches, people watching video, you uh, everything. Everything you could need to get that right. And they still, it's like flipping a fucking coin with them. You know, that's how hard it is. Luke, not an MMA question, but can you suggest five books you think have really built me as a person that I am now? But really, Jesus, um, five books, fucking hell! All right, uh, let's go easy one. Robert Nozick, Anarchy State and Utopia. That, but that one requires a little scholarly work along with it. That's not a that's not an airport read. That's a little bit more of like cross it off your bucket list kind of read. But that was a big one. Man, what are some other ones? Um, Orientalism by Edward Said, another one that's like totally blew my mind. That would be a big one. I'm trying to think of some other ones that really that I go back to. What are some of the ones I go back to? I don't know if I have. Oh. Uh, I've told you guys about it. I mean, some of these don't hold that place in my life, like top five books. I don't, I've never like thought about it that way. I, oh, um, the, the anti-doping crisis in sport it would be number three, I guess. Um, man, I don't know what went wrong. That's funny. Um, some old Fareed Zakaria books. Boy, his stock has fallen. Those are three that I think about a lot. Those are three that really had a fairly big change in my worldview. The rest of them could have been papers or, you know, I've got a bunch of them on here, but they don't hold, like, and that's another part too, man. Like, I did so much, like, reading of stuff in my 20s. You know, The Case for Global Capitalism. I read I read The Road to Serfdom. Um, well, The Road to Serfdom actually would be another big one. Road to Surfdom would be another one. Um, F.A. Hayek. I've read Milton Friedman's works. I've read John, I mean, the work of John Rawls. Um, 
These are it, man, tough one. I'm trying to think of the ones that are sitting on there. God, I also kind of regret. I mean, the books are on here. I spent a lot of time in my early twenties, like a lot of other college kids, reading a lot of Ayn Rand novels. I guess I would say I would put the Fountainhead on the list for two reasons. One, it was big enough that it had an impact, not not a lasting one in the sense that I still believe the philosophy of Ayn Rand, which is called objectivism. I do not, but I am I am very familiar with it. And I will say that The Fountainhead is a good book. Um, you know, whether it's an American classic is certainly up for debate. You're asking my favorite novel would be Sound and Fury, um, The Sound and the Fury. Um, yeah, but, God, I spent so much time reading that bullshit. <laughs> so much time reading Ayn, Ryan, uh, Ayn Rand's um, and, and Leonard Peikoff like on their bullshit on objectivism that you know, and now I I've moved totally away from it. I mean, there's a bunch of books like Noah uh, um, Noah Feldman's After Jihad was a big one I read in the wake of not 9/11 or but maybe like right around the Iraq War I think 2000 three or four something like that and that was really impactful at the time but a lot of that i think has been shown to be outdated um there's just a lot of scholarly work that i did in my 20s that at the time I, if you had asked me like even 10 years ago what i hold there was there would have been a lot that i would have held up and i just feel like a lot has just proven to be not true and it has um it has created some difficulty in like what has shaped your worldview. It's like, I learned a bunch of stuff and some of it truly did last. And I am so grateful for all of that, including the methodology behind learning, which is really important. And like the practice of writing, the practice of speaking and making arguments, all of those things. But in terms of like the specific content of what I was taught uh, by virtue of the majors I picked, I regret to inform you that I would have to have a lot of that rethought. A lot of it would have to be rethought. The Eagle and the Lion, which is a book about U.S. history, relations with Iran, was a big eye-opener for me. The Eagle and the Lion, that's another one. Mostly Middle East history, honestly. Um, Tim Wu's Master Switch has been a one. Like, that really woke me up to like the brilliance of Tim Wu. Um, yeah, here, I, I mean, there's a few. There's a few for you. Okay, here we go. Uh, I would favor Volk against Sterling, but I believe Sterling would okay, but I believe Sterling would struggle against the other top featherweights too. How do you think Sterling does against Yair, Max, and Allen? That's a great question. You know, without having seen him at 145 at all, you're asking me how he does in four of those fights. It's hard to say. Um, here's the thing. Let's go through this. Like Yair might be uniquely susceptible because on the feet, Yair is going to light him up, but Yair can be out-wrestled. He can be controlled along the fence line. He is He's less wild than he used to be, but can still be a little bit reckless with positioning and commitment to particular techniques, which exposes his back. That would be a really big problem against Sterling. Uh, I could see that. Uh, Max has lights-out takedown defense and high volume. I think Max would be a bad matchup for him. Uh, Allen is an interesting one because he's obviously superb uh, as a fighter but has low output by design. That's that's not a critique in as much as it is an observation. And I think a guy who can be high volume or potentially tie him up um, could be a bit of a problem too. So the Yair one would be the most interesting one because it would be either he's going to get, Sterling's either going to get chewed up on the feet or he could make it kind of interesting on the ground or along the fence line anyway. The other ones, Max, I would not like his chances against. Allen probably also wouldn't, but 
harder to say conclusively. Max, I just feel like is so battle tested in that particular department. He'd be very, very tough um, to deal with there. And Volkanovsky, I just feel like would have his way with just about any bantamweight. Um, BC disagrees. Maybe I think I don't fully understand his argument. I think what he has partly argued is just promotionally. Is it a good idea? Could you make money from it? Is it intriguing to some people enough that it makes sense to make the fight? Maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. But just in terms of the fight itself, I don't find that like of all the ways in which like Volkanovsky's 34, right? I think he's about to be 35, something like that. Not a ton of time left in his prime. Sometime like we're not, we're not like, you know, the sands in the hourglass aren't at their very end. But the clock is ticking. Like, we don't have a whole lot of time before he just dips a little bit in performance. And a little bit of a dip in performance could have significant result change. So, my point being is, with that time left, do we really think it makes the most sense for him to be fighting bantamweights? Maybe, again, maybe I'm underestimating Sterling yet again. And he goes in there, he fights Max, and he subs him out inside two rounds. That'd be amazing, right? But I just don't see that as likely. And until one of the other bantamweights, whether it's Suhudo or whatever, goes up and proves something against a top-ranked featherweight, I'm not inclined to believe that they're going to be that competitive. I'm, I, you know, and it sounds like you're bagging, like I'm bagging on the bantamweights. I'm really not, man. Like, it's a super great division, but you're talking about in Max and Volk at the same fucking time, two of the very best to ever fucking do it. Like, you put, like, have some respect for that. Two of the very best to ever do it. Like, um, you know, I just think people are being a little bit too dismissive about who we got up there. We got some fucking absolute all-time hammers currently competing. And Max looked pretty good, I thought, against Allen. We talked about that. You can hear Tuki out there just setting the world on fire. So, you know, I love the bantamweight division. I, I can't wait to see Sterling versus Sean O'Malley. I hope Henry Cejudo sticks around. He has a strong case to have won the fight last Saturday. All, all that, all that. These guys are some of the best fighters I've ever had the uh, honor to cover. But I'm sorry if I say I just don't see anything right now that I'm being shown that tells me they're going to beat fucking Volkanovski. Like, I just, I don't, I'm sorry I don't see it. I, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I don't see it. Uh, Luke, is there a scarier bridge in the world than the Bay Bridge connecting Annapolis and the Eastern Shore? I nearly shat myself when I crossed it this week. How about this? Uh, there's a guy locally, uh, Jason Bishop, who hosts, he's one of the four junkies. Um, the junkies are, uh, the morning show. They've been, they've been in the market for 25 years. Um, uh, if maybe not longer than that, even, I think, uh, on 106.7 The Fan, which is where I got my start in radio. And, um, He, in his 20s, fell asleep on the road and then woke up crossing the Bay Bridge. How about that? Like, just, I, I can't explain it to you. It's like this giant bridge over this vast expanse of water. And it just feels like, the best way to explain it is like that moment when you're climbing to the top of a roller coaster before it goes down. It doesn't have the same descent, but there's a moment where you're driving and it's very unnerving. And a buddy, well, not a buddy, but a guy, a colleague in, in some ways, uh... <laughs> fell asleep on the way to it and somehow woke up on it and didn't crash. Like one of the most miraculous things ever. All right, here we go. Uh, Luke, was Tito the good guy all along? During the Dana and Chuck versus Tito feud, it felt like everyone villainized Tito, even though all he asked for was a bigger payday. With the benefit of hindsight and similar situations playing out since then, Francis Ngannou, 
is it fair to say that Tito was the good guy all along? Well, I mean, in certain ways, sure, sure. Tito, um, Tito was trying to be the guy like he, Tito was the, I mean, you could say Frank Shamrock was the first star in MMA, but in many ways, maybe Tito was. Tito was a star, like a really important part in the UFC's development. Now that part has long since passed and, you know, it seems like old hat what Tito brought to the table, but at the time, especially Tito in his prime, with that ground and pound style, he was he had it was you know he was innovating at the game at a, in a way like taking that some of that game from Mark Coleman and really like making it a big thing not only in the light heavyweight division, but you know it kind of really advancing the cause and it was shining a light on not, uh, uh, guys who had a wrestling background, which wasn't doing by himself. Obviously, Couture was around at the same time. Chuck Liddell wrestled in in, in college, I believe, as well. So. Or I think I think that's true, but I can't even remember anymore. But the point being is, um, so you know, he was this flamboyant, larger than life figure, trying to make it all about himself, which you would expect stars to do. And of course, he butted heads with the UFC as a consequence. The problem was, like, this is what I mean. It's like Couture tries to get, get sideways with the UFC. The industry attacks Couture. Tito gets sideways with the UFC. The industry attacks Tito. Francis gets sideways with the UFC. The industry attacks Francis. It's like, don't you guys see what I'm kind of talking about here? They're, none of the situations are identical. And also not to say that any individual fighter is blameless or has reasonable demands. That's really not the argument that I'm making. What I'm making is that we have such a powerful entrenched force as like the locus of MMA such that anytime someone says whether they're justified or not, and in many cases they are, hey, I don't really like how this is going. We just collectively put all of our effort together to blast this entity to like keep the orderliness of Monopoly going. Like every time someone tries to do this, they get crushed for it. Like even Mark Hunt about the PED thing. Oh, you know, it was fun to watch him bash the UFC, but then he got kind of labeled as like the old guy ranting who just didn't make the money he wanted to, and he was a malcontent. Apparently, like I want to know who the person was who challenged the way the UFC did business and was not labeled a malcontent. Even what was his name? Was it John Cholish or Josh Cholish? The guy who was the energy trader who went to Cornell, who I think trained at Henzo's for a while and fought in the UFC a few times or so. And he did not have a spectacular career. I, I think he went back to Wall Street in the end um, and you know has done well for himself. But he was sort of pinpointing some of these business practices as well and how unfair they were. They, they you know, he got crushed in the media for it as well. Like every time, every time they do this, the industry itself rallies around the dominant market power as a way to like police the ranks and keep everything in order. And it's like, once you begin to divorce what is what, what the merits are from that process and you can evaluate it fairly, you begin to see that like, yes, again, these guys are not utterly blameless, but you know, um, maybe some of their gripes were pretty legitimate and maybe a lot of people made fun of them. Maybe a lot of people dismissed them. Maybe a lot of people rallied behind the UFC brand as a, in their view as the more favorable party in this dispute, but it, it just keeps happening with the same kind of rhyme. And that's not even just that one. You guys don't even remember how much effort the UFC put into signing Fedor when it blew up in their face, even before and after absolutely assassinating that guy's character over and over anyone who challenged their supremacy their status their their spot that they coveted anyone who did anything to get in the way of that got crushed or at least they made an attempt to crush him even if they were able to do business later or whatever um it's just the way that it's always gone that frank shamrock another one again i'm not saying he's a blameless figure either but you just keep seeing this shit over and over are they 
are they all malcontents? Really? All of them? I don't know. That sounds pretty implausible to me. Um, now, you know, when you call Tito a good guy, it really depends on what you mean. Like Francis, and I'm told, by the way, that like um, his announcement is eminent. Eminent. I think it's going to happen very, very soon. Very soon. A matter of days um, is what is my understanding. But I don't have quite know exactly when, but I'm told a matter of days. Anyway, um, we'll see what Francis's deal looks like. Francis has kind of made some appeals about wanting his opponent to be making a certain amount or whatever the case and tried to do something more than for just himself. We shall see what his deal looks like and we can evaluate him from there. But I will say Couture, uh, since his career is over, joining with the, what is it, the uh, MMA FA or the, 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 forgive me for not getting the acronym correct, but it's the gentlemen who are essentially behind the fighter lawsuit in addition to campaigning on uh, Capitol Hill um, to get the Ali Act uh, expanded to MMA. Like he's really kind of been a, um, an advocate for fighters in that way, which in ways like Tito has not done that, which I'm not even saying like Tito has to. I just mean like when he was asking for more money, it could have been legitimate, but he's not necessarily trying to change the way the UFC does business. He, he was just trying to get more money, which still would be justified, but kind of separate from what we think Francis is doing or in the case of like post-career advocacy, what someone like Randy Couture has done. Some meaningful differences. Have I ever had situations where I was on bad terms with someone and then became cool or friends with them again? Yeah. What motivated me to mend those relationships? I don't know if I... Uh, um, Jesus, these are tough questions. Uh, okay. I'm curious what motivated you to mend the relationships and what made you want to do it or how did you go about doing it? Well... Sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. I can say that. Uh, a couple of them. So, for example, like, I told you guys this. After my mom died, I just drank for a long time. And I, I mismanaged a lot of friendships during that time. I lost a lot of friends during that time. Um, and um, one I'm not really proud of. And I was actually never never, never able to mend it. I was, I was a, you know, it doesn't excuse anything because even at the time you just know better, but I didn't do better. And, uh, you know, just let, I just let the sorrow of drinking wash over me. And, um, a buddy of mine was another Marine, uh, and he went to serve and then came back. And I think I, like, I, I, even to this day, I'm, I was too drunk to remember exactly what made him mad at me, but, I remember that I had missed um, like a going away party for like a second tour he had done. And I, and I, I never had a good reason. I don't remember. I don't even remember why I missed it to this day. I can't even tell you like, again, that whole four or five years after that, even then, even more than that, it's just bad news. Um, and uh, never checked in on him to see how he was doing when he was, when he was in country and all kinds of stuff. And he kind of wrote me off and I really understood that. I later uh, met up with him and apologized and tried to make it right. Couldn't really do it couldn't really do it. it it wasn't that i had skipped i think the individual party it was that i had just shown negligence towards a guy who was a friend who was going through very difficult circumstances himself and i think he understood that i was 
barely hanging on, but there was nothing left to put back together, unfortunately. Um, I really regret that. It's one of my biggest regrets. Um, this is another reason why I, I had someone write me recently being like, you know, my mom died. Could you help? And I, I give what information I can. And, uh, and I always tell the man, like, don't do what I did. Don't do the drinking part. And it seems like, ah, I'll do the drinking part and then figure it out later. Dude, you will fuck up your life. Like to say nothing of like what you can do to your health from weight gain to damaging your liver to any number of risk factors that get involved with excessive alcohol consumption. But more than that, dude, you can't manage. If you're, if you're addicted to the bottle like that, you cannot manage your life around you. You cannot really manage your finances. You cannot really manage your marriage. You cannot really manage your interest and everything else. Like if you're, if you were as in deep as I was, you can't really do that. And I didn't, and I didn't. And, uh, I messed up a lot of friendships. Some of them are fine. Um, you know, but, uh, that one, I never got back. That one, I never got back. I, I have to respect his decision. I have to respect his autonomy. I have to respect, um, I can't force the guy to want to be my friend again. Uh, I just have to live with the consequences. So, Word to the wise, ladies and gentlemen, drinking is like a really, really, really bad idea. And it's a probably the worst way to deal with grief. Just an absolute disaster. Don't do it. I did it. I can tell you it is a path to absolutely no place. I'll read this question. I'm not really going to get too far into it. Luke, I normally don't talk politics on the live show, but I want to ask, does it concern you that a number of fighters are openly endorsing Ron DeSantis, whose actions as governor have been fairly openly authoritarian, and considering how the GOP are becoming more openly more and more anti-democratic, e.g. support for Jan 6, removal of Justin Jones, Justin Pearson from the Tennessee House. Well, there's a little bit more to it than that, but okay. And the more recent removal and, and censure uh, of Zoe Zephyr in Montana, who this is the transgender uh, lawmaker. I'm just surprised people don't recognize that the GSP, GOP is heading in a bad direction fast. I'm really not going to comment on this too much because I know some of you are going to be unsympathetic to the framing of that question. What I will just say is um, I have lost the ability to be either impressed or hurt by the political views of the fighters I cover. Um, there was a time in my fandom where, what, what does every fan want? They want the person that they adore, the person, they, the, the person or entity that they are a fan of to, you know, lead by example, but also kind of mirror a world in which that they see pleasantly, you know, and, um, they say never meet your heroes. <laughs> they mean it. No, but in all seriousness, uh, if, if I could, if I could be serious for just a moment, um, they, the political views of the overwhelming majority of the people who I am involved with in this industry are completely different than mine. And so I have a real question I have to ask myself, which is, do I want to be angry about that and then go do another job somewhere? Which by the way, people think that like, it's like some disgraceful thing. That's a perfectly reasonable response for certain people. Maybe I eventually get there. It's not where I'm at right now. Where I'm at right now is I just love the sport itself too much and uh, as I mentioned before, there's all kinds of ways in which um, I think I can understand the fighters and understand their position and understand the sport in which they compete um, without having to have so much of a focus. I think I can't, I, I just personally, how do I say this exactly? 
You know, it's funny. There's a big debate in sports today, like, and uh, you guys know which side of the political aisle I'm on. I, I lean, I think, by most of your standards, pretty far to the left. I would say not that far, but again, relative to some of the people watching, probably pretty far. And there was a time when athletes would speak up about certain causes. This was maybe 20 years ago. And it was considered to be, you know, very taboo. I mean, I remember, you know, Sharif Abdur, or um, not Sharif Abdur Rahim, but um, uh, who did Showtime just do the documentary on? Sharif Abdur Rahim went to my neighbor in high school. But what I wanted to make was, you know, athletes like not standing for the national anthem. Like this, this is, these are like hugely controversial things. Even now, it's still pretty controversial, but like, Back then, you know, even more so where, you know, uh, what was Michael Jordan's quote, like Republicans buy sneakers too, something like that. And um, over time, the media began, the sports media began to advocate athletes speaking out more like, hey, this is your platform. This is your time. It's your career. You can see these issues clearly and go do it. And they were making an argument that you can't really divorce sports from politics. It's not to say that they're always related but that there can be times where they are quite clearly related. For example, um, you know, kneeling is a big controversy, right, for Kaepernick, where there's there's clearly like an intertwined issue there, and you can't just separate them as such. There's some other ones that are less so obvious, but you get the idea. The sports media in the late, I should say, early to mid-2000s really began to lean into athletes doing that kind of thing, and they did more and more and more. But what ended up happening was they ended up just pushing all of sports into culture wars more generally, where now um, every athlete of in any kind of place speaks out in a lot of different ways. But what has happened is I would say more progressive left-wing causes have been taken up by the NBA or in certain cases the NFL, less so the NFL, but definitely the NBA. And now I would say that like sort of the right wing of America has kind of adopted UFC as their sport, or at least has attracted that kind of an audience. I'm um, not, again, not exclusively, but you get the idea like the, the sides have kind of claimed their individual thing. And I think we are all poor for it, quite honestly, not, not that people expressing their views is the problem, but that we have these um, separate communities in so many like our identity is layered in so many ways and now we have made it in and i feel like culture wars have just flattened those layers and it's either this or it's that and that's really it uh, but you can't really blame the fighters in many ways honestly for speaking out about what they believe in a it's their right and 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 whatnot and Dude, they're just doing the same thing that left-wing sports media basically did in the early to mid-2000s to get what they thought were their causes taken up by athletes because they thought that's what the athlete norm was. They were kind of like themselves in certain ways, at least the ones who wanted to speak out about it and that we should give an audience to it. And I think what they ended up creating was like um, an environment where we just we are just flattening everything with the heavy weight of... Uh, identitarianism you know um i haven't thought this through in a way uh to really be able to articulate it more carefully but or more thoughtfully but it just seems to me like if i want to be involved in the sport and i do how much do i want to make the differences i have politically with the people i'm covering the, fo the focus of what i'm doing um and in some ways i do in many ways i do not and um 
again, I don't think you can avoid it. I don't think you can altogether just say, I'm just going to cover the sport and there's really no other way to do it. But um, if you want to work in a space where these kinds of people are operating and there's really, the one thing I will say is the differences with those other causes, teams that are associated with brands or people, major athletes that are associated with major brands, they're going to be, I think, a little bit more careful. And I'm going to argue inclusive of a lot of different people. Whereas the UFC has, has a bunch of independent contractors who are able to make these associations in any which way they want. There was an article from Kareem Zidane today in Bloody Elbow talking about the first time he got a comment from the UFC when Verdum had an announced deal with Ramzan Kadyrov. But before anyone really knew, in the West anyway, who Ramzan was, but beyond government officials. And the UFC commented at the time, like, you know, hey, they're independent contractors, they can... They can kind of make their own rules. They haven't obviously replied to Kareem basically since then, but they got him on the record at the time. Um, there's really no top-down pressure on any of the on anyone on the MMA side because of the lack of association of bigger brands or whatever, um, or you know, just a rejection of any of these cultural forces to kind of um, I think make their some of the worldviews more palatable, not the DeSantis thing, but to make their worldview more palatable to others. Whereas you see a little bit of that um, in the team sports that have much more mainstream appeal. But um, yeah, I don't like, there's like, when I hear Jorge Masvidal talk about his politics, I'm just like, I, I think we live on two different worlds, you know, but uh, he has a career as a fighter. It's a, it's a good one. It's a great one. And there are ways in which to cover the sport to not ignore one, but to not ignore the other on behalf of the distraction. Again, I just feel like it's not to say that there was like there was sports before politics getting involved. That's naive. That's not really true. But there was a world before culture wars ate everything. And that world was better. That world was better. All right. Uh, Luke, Nate has always been good at taking damage. By the way, I wanted to, let me let me clarify one thing. When I talk about like the culture wars eating everything and it was better before, that would go to some extent in both directions where um, just aligning, and I've told you guys before, like some of these causes are so artificial, you know, where we're just going to promote something as a brand. These brands, like whatever, some kind of diversity initiative, a lot of these brands, their business practices are totally fucked up. They don't believe any of this shit. It's just some kind of ruse to cover themselves in the event that they get, they need to have good PR. Like it's not really real. I don't trust any of these brands, like corporate social responsibility, even the UFC. Do you see that at the last broadcast? The UFC talking about its corporate social responsibility. What the fuck are they talking about? You know, it's like, <laughs> you gotta be kidding me, man. You know, uh, like, what it, it just it, these things and it's not just them it's any brand pepsi cola um you know doritos whoever all these corporate social responsibilities like asking these corporations to have a role in the community that is you know seen to be in conjunction with your political worldview uh they don't believe any of that shit they'll just do it to make themselves look good whatever it ends up being try to make it some kind of generic way to make it you know somewhat more palatable and then let's go back to doing all the fucked up shit they've always been doing you know where disney is thinking the province in China where all the Uyghur Muslims are held in these what appear to be concentration camps. Like, thanks. Thanks for letting us shoot movies. there. like, what? Like, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's just totally disingenuous. So like, this is what I mean. Like the whole thing, it makes people fly flags in more intense ways that they probably ordinarily wouldn't. It makes them otherize 
other people in ways that they probably wouldn't. It, it just, it drives these, like, this atomization of us all. And I, I think we're all poor for it. All right, I'm going to skip this one because I kind of want to move on to something else. Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Luke, do you have any plans on doing a live chat outside of MMA? I've been following since the MMA beaten, although I very much enjoy Morning Combat and your lives. I do uh, find your take on other topics rather interesting. Well, I appreciate that. I do think there is a big space for you in the Joe Rogan, Lex Friedman, Friedman world. Uh, I don't think in their world. I don't think Joe's going to have me on, folks. I don't think Joe hates me, but, man, I can't really say it. <laughs> I could tease it. There was something he said, and it, don't get me wrong, dude. Joe's the man. Like, I don't have one bad thing to say about Joe. Like, I really appreciate I mean, I disagree with him on a lot of stuff, but, like, I agree with him on a lot of stuff, too. Um and I'm very, very grateful that he he lended me a, a a a spotlight to be on his show. I just got a feeling it ain't gonna happen again because there was something he said, you know, um, like the instant we turned the mics off, he said something to me. And at the time I didn't think much about it, but in retrospect, I now recognize was probably the canary in the coal mine for me not getting back on. <laughs> I mean, maybe he just thought I wasn't very interesting too. There's certainly that possibility. Although the 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 episode I'm told did really well. Um, but you know, so I don't think I have, I don't think I have much of a future in that. Uh, here's what I want to do. If I can just be totally honest with you guys, this is what I want to do. I think what I want to do, and I haven't committed to this yet. And I, I was going to commit to it, but I didn't have a good plan with Othello yet. What I would, I think I need to do is I think I have to have a Patreon. I think I have to have that. And I think inside that Patreon, what I want to do is not just give you guys breakdowns to fights that I do coming off the weekend. Um, what I'm thinking about doing is in addition to that, um, audio podcasts all the time, just like sitting down, recording myself after an event and putting it up there, doing extra chats unrelated to, uh, MMA stuff doing, um, I've been thinking about like folks have been asking me, how do I break down film, teaching people my methods and hoping that that gives them a better shot at what they're trying to do, right? Like, here's my here's my uh, workflow, and here's how I do this. This is what I, I do to look, and, like, I'm taking requests on individual pieces of what I can do, like, even working almost in a client capacity, maybe for certain people. Um, that's what I want to do. Uh, I don't fully have a, a concept fleshed out yet about how what that package looks like, but the reality is I love doing the live chat, uh, but, you know, I don't think that it's destined for... Uh, another 10 years I think it's probably pretty fair to say probably a lot less than that and I think that social media has certainly changed the way in which I can deliver content to you and what kind of content you want and so it's kind of made me reevaluate what the pitch is don't get me wrong I'm not changing the 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 my YouTube channel I'm just thinking like what are the ways in which I can provide value add and kind of deliver on my own goals and expectations I think giving a broader suite of um, instruction and uh, help and or just kind of the content you're looking for through a Patreon is sort of where I'm headed. Now, you're asking a bit of a different question. Yeah, no, it's really in conjunction with that. Yeah, I put all that behind there and just give you as much content as I possibly could in addition to what we're already doing because there's a lot of stuff that we leave on the cutting room floor for um, for MK. So that's kind of where I'm at. that 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 Here we go. Good question from MMAI. I think that's him. Here we go. 
Uh, what do you think of the UFC's choices when it comes to card placement? Recent fights like Royville being on prelims, Dober versus Frivola as well, whereas Crone Gracie is the opener of the pay-per-view. What do you think motivates these decisions? Well, could be some of their managers. That's one. Um, the other one is, here's what I think. There's a term that Brian Campbell uses, which you see significantly more in boxing circles than you do in MMA, but it, it really is a shame because I think it's very valuable in MMA circles, namely TV fighters. TV fighters. What do I mean by TV fighter? A TV fighter is a good fighter, or certainly in certain cases can be, can be a very good fighter. But what they are is an action fighter, just balls out, action, reliable in every way, just the kind of person that really makes the TV experience great. Um, you know, uh, and there's certain kind of boxers who really fit that role. Uh, eventually, some of them can graduate to pay-per-view levels or whatever, but I think that if you're looking why Royville was on the prelims and Dober versus Frivola, they're, those are all TV fighters, every one of them. And Crone, I would say, is not a TV fighter, but was, is kind of like this other attraction, at least pre-288, this kind of like interesting attraction, this like, at the time, kind of weirdly distant, weirdly relevant from this, you know, maybe the most important lineage from a family perspective and MMA history, like he's got a certain special thing that would be better to put him behind a paywall. I get what you're saying. Like Frivola versus Dober was infinitely better than Jordan versus um, Crone, but I think that's what's separating them. They're trying to serve different masters, which require um, not necessarily putting all of their best stuff on pay-per-view, but putting the things that is best for pay-per-view sales or um, somehow completing that larger puzzle rather than like, let's put TV fighters here and then TV fighters not here. And again, you might be like, well, some guys who are on the main card are also like Michael Chandler is sort of like a, like the super highest level of TV fighter, something like that. But, but I think that's, I think that's why they did that. Now you can only do that for so long because in the case of like, for example, Royville and for on his way, but certainly in the case of Royville, it's like one of the top guys in the world. He, so I would agree at this point, he definitely merits higher card placement but if i'm you're 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 tasking me with how do i think about them in their card placement not that i'm agreeing with ufc i'm trying to like put my mind where their head is at they're trying to serve those those masters they're putting tv guys tv fighters on tv portions of the card typically i think royville may have been on even before that but certainly um, dober and frivola uh here we go Okay, here's a good one. Then we'll get to some of the paid questions. Here we go. Luke, do you believe Aljo beats Triple C if they fought under one's rules, allowing knees to a downed opponent? Also, Herb style refereeing was night and day from the DJ fight to the Triple C fight. What ref style do you prefer? Like, well, the difference, okay, let's start with the ref thing. Yeah, Herb was doing a different thing, but there were different fights, man. And like I'm stating the obvious, but what I mean is. DJ was clinching with Marias, and then Marias would run him into the fence to kind of control him because he didn't have an answer for uh, a DJ that could move in the clinch. And then the, the fight would stall out. Well, I mean, of course Herb is going to intervene there more. Okay. That's not, not to say that there wouldn't be other reasons why, but that was a very different fight than what you got here. Now, if Aljo fights Triple C... Does he beat Triple C if they fight under one's rule set? Well, I'll say this. If you get the exact same fight and then you wanted to currently grade that by the one system, I still think Aljo wins that because I think he just did overall much more 
work. And I think that overall has a much more impactful um, significance. If you're saying, what if they had started that fight under the one rule set? In other words, to your, to your point, like Aljo couldn't stall there. Hard to say, but I will, I, you know, here's the thing. It's like the fight was that close, that close. If, uh, if Henry could knee him there, anything like that could have changed the result. But the other thing you have to ask yourself is would Aljo have shot that way? I don't know. Um, and also, I think one thing to consider is um, not only how would that have changed the approach of Aljo, um, but also like there's a fair criticism to make of Henry Cejudo here. You know, I've seen people being like, oh, he doesn't have the arms for it. Bullshit. Yes, he does. He was rolling. He was gator rolling Marlon Moraes in their fight. He was gator rolling him. You know, uh, this idea that he can't get it because he's got stubby arms. I think Jack Slack pointed this out. Dude, Pitbull's got the exact same build. And he chokes the fuck out of people. It's not true at all. His His inability in those positions. Yes, the one rule set would have liberated him. I think that's probably pretty fair. Does change how Aljo may have fought, but also just given what rule set they were under, you can argue that like Henry should have had a better answer in those positions. For a guy as high level as he is, kind of just holding on and not really knowing what to do, or you know they were trying to do like he was doing a lot of three quarter stacks, like grab the neck, come under the arm on top, and then you kind of roll him over and pin. You you, you essentially you lift the armpit and then push the head under. Right, it's called a three quarter stack. And he was like wrenching on the neck doing that. Like that was fine. And dude, for Aljo to, to withstand that, given everything he's been through, is remarkable. But there is a fair criticism to make that Henry should have done more with those positions given what he was up against. I don't think that's altogether unfair. All right, let's get to some of these paid ones. Uh, if you've got one, you can fire it in. If not, no big deal. All right, here we go. Uh, from Vincent asks, do you know if Crone is training full-time in Montana? That's my understanding. If so... With whom? I don't know. Demian Maya was in his corner. Yes, I saw. Thoughts on the influence he had over the lack of striking. Thanks for all the content. Hope to catch you at a Nats game. You just might. You just might. Um, yeah, here's the thing. Maya abandoned the striking for a pure grappling-based game, but his grappling kind of took it to you. He would either try to like get the back against the fence, or he would shoot, wait for the sprawl, and then baseball slide underneath. Like He was actively really trying to get it i just didn't sense any urgency from crone like people are making this out to be 100 a function of crone style being outdated okay crone style is massively outdated but there seems to me that he just also had a bit of a lifeless performance just i'm not saying he was going through the motions but i did it really look to you like winning mattered so badly to him did that look that way to you it didn't look that way to me. It didn't look like winning really was like he couldn't live with himself if he didn't win. You know, you guys have seen fighters where they couldn't live with themselves if they didn't win. He just didn't have that. And I'm, listen, maybe he fought for the wrong reasons. Maybe he only figured that out now. I, I don't know. I don't know what the future holds for Crone. I'm not even like insulting him. I'm just saying if we're trying to best explain why he lost, I don't think you can altogether rule out a big enthusiasm gap that he had. A big one. All right. Luke, today is my 36th birthday. What was your most memorable birthday in your 30s? Dude, this is a sad story. <laughs> my, 
my 30th birthday was a complete disaster. Um, I just worked that day. I had had, uh, I don't even want to tell this, man. I just don't even want to fucking do it. It's just another world. Basically, I spent my 30th birthday uh, alone and uh, like sad from a breakup. And uh, I just remember feeling like how inauspicious a beginning to my 30s I thought it was at the time. Turned out my 30s were okay. Like it's all a bunch of, you know, it's all in your head. But yeah, dude, that was terrible. That was terrible. Um, I don't, I don't know if I can remember like a really happy birthday. <laughs> Sorry. It's kind of true. How can fighters from outside the UFC fill in on short notice if they haven't been cleared and if they haven't been in the USADA testing pool for six months? Which ones are we referring to? Also, the UFC can just waive that. So there's that too. Uh, all right. Does the UFC have a lack of star power more so than usual Contributing to the feeling of watered down cards. Can you discuss what makes a star in MMA? Yeah, they do. They do. Uh, a star in MMA is just the kind of person where, like, again, the way the business used to work was the more pay per views they sold, the that that, that pay per view was so central to the way they made money that they wanted to build up these larger than life figures. And again, I, I, I mentioned this on MK yesterday. Like when Aldo and McGregor fought, remember they went on a world tour. They went on. They went to. They went to Ireland. They went to Brazil. They were in parts of the United States. They did this really uncommon, heightened kind of thing. And then when, the, for example, McGregor fought Mendez, remember they had the dude from Stained and they had Sinead O'Connor singing, like just this next level ability to make things feel big, to make guys look big. And of course, at the end of the day, the promotion can put them on whatever show they want. They can give them whatever media training they want. M much of it, almost all of it in certain ways, is up to the fighter themselves. But in terms of the UFC's positioning, they what they used to want was to make the fighters in certain cases. I mean, they now always want to like, you know, the brand was always number one. But in order to make the most amount of money, there was probably more of an effort to turn individual uh, fighters into really, really big uh, attractions, really, really sort of, again, larger than life figures, like celebrities, like to the word, like celebrate them. John Jones going to Baltimore when his brother played there, I think, honestly, was kind of a big thing. I remember I remember we were on the way to the weigh-ins for um, – was this in – no, sorry. This was in the Rashad fight. This was in the Rashad fight. We were in Atlanta. We had left one event, and we were going to the next one, and a, a couple of guys hitched – a couple of camera guys hitched a ride with us. Uh, this is like pre-Uber or like, you know whatever they, they needed a ride they were all camera guys they were all with the uh, nfl network they were only there to shoot john because of his association with uh his brothers chandler and then at the time arthur you know again larger than life figures that's really the kind of thing and because of the, their, the way they do business now where pay-per-view is still a significant revenue driver but not nearly as impactful as it once was they've been they've reduced the volatility month to month because they've got you know, a person who doesn't sell on one month and a huge sales the next one, they've kind of evened that out and they have much more contracted revenue. So they don't have the same kind of need to really blow these guys up the way that they used to. It doesn't mean they don't try to promote them. It just doesn't feel quite like there's the white glove treatment that they used to get in certain cases. The UFC used to really pound the pavement with that. And it just feels like we're getting a not as much. Just everything just kind of is the same um week to week month to month but it was really about making fighters look like gods you know uh da -da -da. 
How do you feel about Aljo keeping Marab in the back seat? Marab has the skill and Habib-like personality to become a potential star in the UFC. Well, Marab's a grown man. Marab's a grown man. So if he feels like this is the right situation for him, he has to accept the consequences. If he doesn't, he doesn't. Like Aljo doesn't control him. He is a grown adult who can make absolutely his own uh, decisions. I don't. I don't really feel like that's a like you're blaming Aljo for something he has no control over. Like I know what you're saying. Like, oh, I'm not gonna. First of all, he has he he has one more fight, and then he wants to leave the division. So this is hardly some like permanent backseat. And more to the point, like Marab can do what he wants. He doesn't have to stay there. Okay, there's a message on here. I don't know what that means. That's probably some kind of like, I don't know, pornographer's Reddit uh, inside joke. Matchups you want to see in the second half of 2023. Ooh. Uh, definitely Shavkat, Rachmanov back in there. Definitely want to see Hamzat back in there, man. Like, what the fuck is going on with that? Um, honestly, like, I would love to see Whitaker versus Izzy, but uh, for the third time, but honestly, Drickus versus Izzy for the th- for the first time might be kind of fun. Um, want to see Bo Nickel as active as possible. I'm trying to think. Um, definitely want to see, I, I cannot wait to see Yair versus uh, Alex. I think I'm so excited for that one. Um, I want to see not just uh josh emmett and um oh god what the fuck good lord my brain doesn't even work right hold on let me pull up the rankings here all right so at featherway yeah Ilya toporia i not only want to i want to see toporia i think he i think he might fight for a title either this year or the beginning of next um i know he's got a fight with emmett coming up but like him versus any other top guy like him versus max would kind of be fucking awesome you know uh john if he sticks around would be you know big although you know i don't know how much that's really going to happen aaron blanchfield uh, i tell you what aaron blanchfield fighting shevchenko is what i got my eye on i because I, I think blanchfield can win that like absolutely can win that one no doubt about it in my mind that's a big one too there's many others but these are just top of mind uh, I thought I was putting someone else's question in that I missed. Uh, all year going to be Ramadan to these welterweight fighters with Bilal atop the welterweight division unless King Connor fights this year. Uh, I don't know what that means. You mean like people are going to be ducking and dodging until Connor comes back looking for the big fight night? Yeah, probably. But if Bilal has a coveted position, they will ev- other, others will eventually want to fight him. If you were to sit down with McGregor for an RSD-like interview, what would be the number one question you'd like to ask and what would you like to gain from speaking to Connor? I would honestly, like everyone has done every other thing. And it's not like I even have it out for McGregor, like, you know. But I would ask about all of the things he's been accused of doing that have been kind of written about in Irish media, but not really written about that much in American media. And he'd probably walk out and threaten me, but as any athlete would under those circumstances. But that's how I would spend it because everyone else would just do the same old, Hey, Connor, why are you great? Can we lick your balls the, the whole time, you know? Uh, why is there so much preamble at boxing pressers? Because they're old school. Because they're old school. What do you think of the writer's guild strike? I fully support them, and I hope it's super successful. And uh, um, I think that they're absolutely correct. It's not gig work. Um, 
I remember the last writer strike. Let me tell you, the products did not improve at all. They were a disaster to kind of deal with, such that it lasted. And um, I think the writers are some of the most creative and talented people we have in the entertainment industry, and their future should be secured. I fully support them and hope that they are ultimately very successful. All right. Uh, do you plan on seeing the new Guardians of the Galaxy? Yes. Thoughts on the MCU directs movies and Disney Plus shows? Man, I've kind of checked out big time on that shit. So I do like James Gunn, and I trust him very much to do a good job. I saw his redone version of basically of Suicide Squad, and I loved it. Obviously, the, the two previous Guardians I liked as well. I would love to see this one. I'm just trying to make some time. Um, you're asking about MCU direct movies uh, and Disney Plus shows. I watched, I haven't seen the new season of Mandalorian because I just got kind of bored with it. Um, um, I'm looking forward, to, it's, not, it's not MCU in the way you're talking about, but I'm looking forward to the new Miles Morales Spider-Man sequel. I can't wait for that one. Um, but dude, I haven't watched any, like I saw an ad for like a new movie coming out where like Captain Marvel teams up with like a, I think like, like I don't know what her name is. Like she's like um, she's from like I think she's either Indian or Pakistani. Some like teenage girl in Jersey City. I forget her name. Um, like her teaming up with some other woman in like some kind of group, and it's like, dude, I don't even know who these people. I know who Captain Marvel is. I don't even know who these other people are. I, I hate to be like this old guy who's kind of like checked out, but dude, like with the time that I have watching these bad shows, just is not on the fucking list, man. This is not on the fucking list. Um, so. Oh, I, the movies I saw uh, that I finally had a chance to watch was I saw the Creed three. I saw Creed three, which I thought was like okay, not great. I did see Everything Everywhere All at Once, just absolutely fantastic. Couldn't say enough good things about that movie. If you're not seeing that movie, I don't know what the fuck you're doing with your life. You might be like someone else who's watching might be like Luke. It's weird. Yes, it's weird. It's weird. All the more reason to see it. It's absolutely spectacular film. Uh, I saw the second Avatar, worst fucking movie ever, dude. I have literally. I've made that joke on MK, like the 49 times thing. I have tried in 49 different occasions to finish that fucking movie. And like 30 seconds in every time I'm like, oh my God, this movie is so goddamn terrible. Uh, so really terrible. And then I watched the Shazam sequel and that was like, okay, okay. Let's see what else we got here. Uh, what does keeping them honest mean? I feel like it's used differently every time I hear it. Well, the idea would be that you're talking about one group of people whose job it is to either police or question or otherwise challenge another group of people who otherwise, but for that mechanism, might not give you the full, the full Monty, the full truth. Um, so, like, there can be relationships and dynamics between people, between organizations, between entities where, like the case of the media whose job it is to police our politicians, whether they or you know, cover them, whether they do or not is a separate matter. But part of their job is to certainly, it's to force government transparency, is to force government um, accountability. Again, whether they accomplish that task is a separate matter. Uh, what did Rogan say to you? Boy, I would like to tell you. I would like to tell you, but I really can't. Um, maybe one day, maybe one day. But I am... Once again, at the time, I didn't think much of it. I was like, yeah, that's probably true. And then now I'm like, oh, right. Right. Yeah. Okay. If you talk about the issues I talk about in the way I talk about them, 
gonna make you gotta make some people mad. Yeah, it's the way it goes. All right. One thing that hurts Aljo among fans is championship round perception. He lost rounds four. How, oh, yes. Lost rounds four and five to Jan. Yes. And round five to Sahudu. Yes. Similar to Jones versus Reyes. No. The exact. Well, sort of. Uh, well, okay. Except it's the opposite. Like Jones lost the first three rounds in my mind and only won the last two. I realize that that's Texas had a bit of a different way of looking at it. But yes, he doesn't. There have been times where he has been unable to, let's say, finish strong. He's got enough work done to win, but he hasn't finished strong. I mean, I don't think that's altogether an unfair thing. I mean, listen, here's the point I tried to make about this on uh, before. Guys, Aljo is very, very, very good. And these guys keep going in there thinking, like, I'm going to be the one to take this belt from him. And then when the fight's over, they're like, fuck, that was a little bit more than I thought it was. And they're not losing by huge margins. I mean, Corey got run over, but you know. Like in the Yan case or in the Cejudo case, he's not losing by wide margins. That's not what's happening. But he is consistently putting himself just ahead enough to maintain his position. He's doing just enough to 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 uh, be competitive and then, in, by the judge's account, better than these guys on the night they are tasked with fighting. It's not like there's a giant gap between him and the rest of the field. They're all pretty close. But I think a lot of them are like, oh, I can beat him. I'm real confidence in their skills and just not giving their opponent the respect he deserves. And they're paying for it over and over again. Like, in other words, if Henry rematched him, would you like Henry's chances to win? I think he would. He might do it. He might do it. You know, again, Aljo is not so far from Henry. Well, that's like a crazy thing to think about. It's just that... Uh, Aljo is significantly better than his opponents are willing to outwardly acknowledge. Thanks to Jay Garcia. Appreciate it. Hota. Harrison Garms writes, I know Lopez is good, but Evloev kind of got exposed. I, I won't say, uh, maybe a little, a little. Here's what I mean. One fight can't exactly always tell you that, but, well, I mean, I guess the Ronda fight with Hollywood, but with Holly. W-O-U-L-D with Holly Holmwood. But what I would what I would say is the following. Uh he had like all those decisions before. And like he was real good. And, like do his boxing is really crisp. Like his takedowns are good. His top control is strong. Like he did a lot of things where he's like really good at it. But at the same time, um, there was never that extra gear where he was like savagely laying into some of these guys, you know, compare that to someone like Taporia, who's got a little bit of a problem where he's not nearly as defensively sound, I would argue as Eloev, but he is just much more offensively potent and the results speak for them speak for themselves. So what I would say is when he went up against a guy who was so like on the top of his game with attack, 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 he just wasn't really used to that. Now, he actually ended up in the end being a good fit for that, which is to say over the course of 15 minutes, you like the guy who's going to be much more defensively responsible versus the one who's going to be like offensively just, you know, both barrels, empty them, and then see what happens later, right? You're going to like that that smarter, more long, like long-term approach to a fight than the short one. At the same time, what it showed was like just how much you can make him react, just how uh, marginal sometimes 
his offensive output can be. And in that sense, if you can like take some of what Lopez did in terms of intensity and output and attack and, but just make it a little bit smarter, you know, rather than just kind of, he got a faded in the second round, better takedown defense. Yeah. You might be able to do something with it. You can do something with it. So it was a combination of what we had kind of seen previously, just really magnified in the Lopez fight. Last thing on this one. Oh, actually there might be another one. Uh, who understands the internet less senators on how social media platforms work or Dana White claiming power slap is more popular than the NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, F1, and WWE combined. You know what, boys and girls, let's do a little test on the air, shall we? Let's do a little test. Now, this is just subscriber count, so that wouldn't really tell you the whole thing. But let's, I, I just want to see. Hold on, let's see here. Power slap Twitter. Okay. Let's see here. They've got 21, basically 22,000 followers. Okay. Twitter, 22,000 followers. Let's see. Not now. Let's go to YouTube. Let's see. Let's see. Power slap. How many subs do they have? Okay. Here we go. This is the official power slap right here. You can see because it's verified. They have less subs than I do. <laughs> They have fewer subscriptions than I do. Now, I realize that some UFC content gets filtered through, sorry, I should say, some Power Slap content gets filtered through some of the UFC distribution channels. They have fewer than I do. Let's look at this on Facebook, shall we? Let's do Power Power Slap on Facebook. Let's see what they got. Power Slap on Facebook. Power Slap on Facebook has twenty uh, hundred eighty-two thousand. Here, let's see you can see it. 182,000 followers. Let's see some of their videos. Just look at these dullards. Uh, hold on. Uh, 12K views. Uh, 12K views. 12K views. 20K views. This one This one here's got 122. Uh, 4.5. Okay. All right. So there we go. Let's try Instagram. Let's see. Power slap Instagram. Let's just go through these, shall we? Power slap Instagram. What do they have? Let's see. What do we got here? Okay, they got a bunch, 868K, but that's still not like an enormous uh, amount relative to the other leagues, which we're going to look at here in a second. What am I missing? Oh, TikTok. There'll be other ones too, Snapchat and whatnot. TikTok, power. I bet they got a bunch on power slap uh, on TikTok, excuse me. What they got on TikTok? Let's see. They've got, yeah, they got a bunch on TikTok. They've got 3.2 million. Uh, right there, as you can see. Okay, so you get the idea here, right? You get the idea about what, what they've got. Now, let's compare that to, say, they got more than everyone else, right? Now, let's compare that to the NFL. So what does the NFL have on Twitter? Let's see what the NFL's Twitter uh, account looks like. Uh, 33 million. 33 million Twitter followers is how many they have. How many does Power Slap have? Let's see again. Let's do this. Power slap uh, Twitter. Here we go. 21,000. So NFL, 33 million. Power slap, 22,000. Okay. Let's check on YouTube, shall we? Remember, they had one hundred. They had 123,000 follow, uh, subs, subs on YouTube. 123. How many does the NFL have? Let's see. The NFL has... Right. 11.2 million subscribers. 
Okay, let's check on Facebook. Let's see. Boy, you can imagine all the old people who like NFL on Facebook. It's going to be a shitload on there. Let's see how much the NFL has. Right, so Power Slap had... Hold on. Power... Oops. Power... Oops. Hang on. Power Slap had 182,000 followers on Facebook. The NFL... So here it is. 182,000 on Facebook. The NFL has, let's see, where are we at here? What are the amount of followers? Am I missing it somewhere? Uh, oh, here we go. Uh, they have 18 million people who like it and then basically 20 million people who follow it versus 182K. Let's check TikTok, shall we? As my daughter just makes unbelievable amounts of noise outside of my door. Hold on, TikTok, NFL. What is What does the NFL do on TikTok? Oh, right. How about 11.2 million? 11.2 million. Uh, what am I missing? Oh, Instagram. What are they doing on Instagram? So they had 868,000 for Power Slap. Let's see what they do on Instagram very quickly. Hold on. Here we go. And last but not least, Power Slap on Instagram, 868K, right? Here it is, 868K. Let's do grand reveal NFL, right? 27.6 million right up here. <laughs> You know, I, I'm certain that some of those slapping posts and whatever go viral, like in ways that, you know, can can uh, be dramatic. I, I certainly recognize that. I don't, I would love to know what Dana meant by that. Because like, dude, I could just do, I could just, I mean, he didn't mention soccer, like European soccer, because like, I could just do Real Madrid's numbers, their social numbers, and they're like, orders of magnitude bigger than this we're, we're not even including f1 we're not including mlb we're not including nba we're not including any of those things like that's just the nfl i don't get it and then last so here othello is asking me to expand on why i think avatar 2 is such a shit movie dude you ever like you've seen these movies you like okay here's a great example like Terminator 2 is a great, or like in this Matrix 1 is more like sci-fi action, but still it would qualify. You can have it. People think, this is the fucking argument I hate the most. People think that when I criticize an action movie, what they say is, dude, turn your brain off. You're, you're thinking too much about it. It doesn't have to be all that stuff. Just, you know, just enjoy the explosions for what they are. It's like, dude, you're a fucking rube. Like the idea that you can't have a reasonable plot or semi-decent acting or an okay script just because it's an action movie it's just fucking ridiculous like it's so obviously not true that, that that's a thing i have to accept that's a thing that dullards accept right like oh well it's there's there's explosions i guess i don't have to, any right to criticize the script no you can they couldn't do a better job not not every movie is transformers like you're allowed to try right you're allowed to try to do both action and a decent script, uh, action, and a decent plot. Like, I'm not asking for, you know, The Merchant of Venice. Uh, I'm not asking for, um, you know, Othello. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not asking for that. I'm just asking, like, make it make sense. Make it make it halfway decent. Give me a couple chuck chuckles. Like Top Gun Maverick, they never named who the enemy was, but, you know, it more or less got the job done, where it's a very thin, well, and even then, that's a lot of nostalgia porn, but even then, like, they made it entertaining. The plot was very basic and not even all that great, but, you know, good enough to make it work. And the dialogue was kind of fun in that way. Not 
in any way super cerebral, but you know, they at least tried a little bit. That's like you can at least get away with that. This is why I can't watch like the Fast and the Furious series. Like the Fast and the Furious is for people who just they just hate reading books, is really the answer there. I'm sorry to tell you that. Like, I'm sure there's been some good scenes and some, you know, some movies are better than others, but I have a hard time believing I've missed out on a lot knowing what Lil Bow Wow was up to in Tokyo. I just I'm probably good to go on that. Anyway, Avatar is basically that. Like, from a movie-making perspective, what they're able to accomplish in terms of effort and cinematography and this relationship between computer graphics and, and the real world and, and world-building, like, there's a lot that goes into it. There's nothing else there. The plot is as thin as you could possibly fucking imagine. The ending is as predictable as you could possibly imagine. The acting is as rudimentary as you could imagine. Like in this whole idea of like the Navi is quite obviously based on like a Native Americans, but in like in a sci-fi version of shit. It's just, it's just lazy. Like, like there, it was almost like like we have a finite amount of effort we can put into something. Let's put all of it into the computer graphics, the world building, that kind of shit, and everything else. Just you know. Just have Chat GPT write it for you, right? Chat GPT, write me a very basic, kind of shitty plot for an Avatar sequel. Um, make sure you include that it's in water this time, and then Chat GPT spits out some bullshit, and there you go. Like that's that's what they just formed that out to that. Like that's like when I talk about the writer strike, I'm not talking, I'm not talking about the writers of Avatar. Like those fuckers deserve to lose their jobs. I'm talking about the ones who actually are halfway good at it. There's just nothing there. Like, how can you watch a three-hour movie based on nothing but, like, kind of cool, but ultimately very limited in terms of, like, what it can do for you, sensory colorization and or computer graphics? Like, how long before you're like, okay, that's cool. Is there is there anything else? Like, at all? Oh, oh, there's not. Okay, there's not. There's not. It's just that. All right. Well. You know, so I read books. I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you. Like it's a can't do fast and the furious. You know what I mean? Can't do it. All right. <laughs> As I've alienated half the audience by saying that. Um, thank you guys so much for watching. Podcast will be up. Reminder, 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 reminder. MK tomorrow in studio. We're going to have the wheel of death. We're going to make BC eat things that are going to make him vomit. It's going to be a big show. Be there. Watch it live. 11 a.m. in the East. Please be a part of that. And, of course, uh, thumbs up on this. You can email me, LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. You can give me feedback any which way you like. I don't mind it. Um, yeah, that's it for me. So until next time, I'll catch you guys tomorrow for regular MK. And uh, until then, a, uh, well, I usually say I'm all of you games below. But in this particular podcast, I say stay frosty. That's right.